This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet or visit esv.org to get started. Welcome to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and each week I'm joined by insightful guests to talk about their written work and how the gospel applies to all of life. Together, we keep looking until we see God working. Wherever you're listening, welcome. I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. The Gospel Coalition's foundation documents include a theological vision for ministry, originally drafted by Tim Keller. I'd never heard of theological vision before I read this statement in 2007. Soon I learned that the concept originated with Richard Lentz in his book, The Fabric of Theology. Theological vision is the space between your doctrinal beliefs and your ministry programs. Theological vision helps you adapt your ministry to changing conditions while keeping centered on the unchanging gospel. Well, Richard Lentz has published a new book, Uncommon Unity, Wisdom for the Church in an Age of Division, which includes a foreword from Keller. In this book, Lentz exposes problems with the inclusion narrative of democracy and offers a better way forward to find unity amid unprecedented cultural diversity in our day. He writes this, The main thing I want to do in this book is to view the gospel story as the interpretive lens through which we understand the telos of creation as a rich, deep, and complex unity in difference. In this special season of Gospel Bound, we're exploring in depth several key influences that appear in my book, Timothy Keller, His Spiritual and Intellectual Formation. Lentz is himself one of those influences. He is Senior Consulting Theologian at Redeemer City to City in New York City. Previously, he served as Andrew Much Distinguished Professor of Theology at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in South Hamilton, Massachusetts, alma mater of Tim and Kathy Keller. So I'm grateful for this chance on Gospel Bound to talk with him about unity, diversity, theological vision, and much more. Rick, thanks for joining me on Gospel Bound. It's good to be with you, Colin. Uh, looking forward to the conversation. <laughs> Let's just start, Rick, with a basic question. How did you develop your concept of theological vision? I, I started the, the investigation thinking out how uh, you get from reading the Bible well to applying it. And it struck me that much of the evangelical community talked about application in largely arbitrary fashion. You uh, had much about how to read the Bible, far less how to get from the Bible uh, to the context in which you were doing ministry. So trying to build a bridge, it was engaged with lots of wider conversations about method in theology. But at the end of the day, I was trying to build a bridge between what it meant to read the Bible well and apply the Bible well. Uh, uh, against the backdrop then of this language, one of these big themes across the scriptures uh, of uh, having eyes but not seeing and the language of vision came to the fore. It may well have been in the background, the vision language that was current in the political uh, discourse at that time in the Bush-Clinton 
uh, campaign, uh, but I'm not sure that factored uh, significantly in the use. But 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 it it seemed to give to me ca- a category to think about the bridge between these two uh, contexts that that the gospel that uh, narrates for us is narrated for us in the scripture, and then how it interprets uh, our uh, context. Uh, and it strikes me that one of the callings of every missionary is to uh, understand their own culture and the culture into which they go. Uh, and we'll get further into this along the way, uh, but to learn the language of scripture and the language of your cultural context is at the heart of what a theological vision does. There's no magic to it. There's not. It's not a mechanical process. It's uh, living in that world of uh, redemptive history of the story of the Bible uh, and uh, reckoning with how it both overlaps and challenges uh, the world you live in. Uh, and I think the language of sight is so significant across uh, the scriptures. It just popped out, uh, if you will, and uh, I ran with it. Uh, tell us just a little bit more about how you develop this concept of, of theological vision. I, I'm also detecting some maybe some influences of Newbegin there, because you talked about missionaries and contextualization, but that's not typically how American evangelicals have seen their own context. That's for going overseas. So was that an influence? And then just how do you how do you develop this? How, how do you how do you begin to see rightly? How, what's that process look like? Yeah, Newman became an influence after I uh, kind of landed into this language of theological vision, and uh, he reinforced so much of what I was after. Gave me some new language to speak about it for sure of what it meant to be a missionary in your own context, uh, rather than thinking about the missional calling. Uh, at in a foreign land uh, in a different language. So thinking out loud then about the challenge every pastor faces, and I was a seminary professor uh, at the time thinking about how do you prepare pastors? Uh, well, there's no doubt every pastor, every church leader grapples with how the gospel speaks into their context. Uh, how, how, how do you give it legs? Uh, how, how do you shape uh, the ministry the programs uh, of the church. And this language of theological vision then gave me uh, categories to think about uh, the th- that particular challenge. Um, and it, it then leads into lots of other very interesting uh, issues uh, for sure. So two in particular, just concrete examples. In the book, I tease out at considerable length the way in which late modern democracy influences how we speak about diversity. It's part of the air that we breathe. It's part of the influence. It's part of the tradition into which we have come. Uh, and so I uh, argue in the book that it is uh, it includes uh, an inclusion narrative and an exclusion narrative. That is, it includes far more than had ever been included, given them the right to vote, but it also excluded by virtue of majority rule, uh, uh, those who were not allowed to vote. Now, I, I, I think there's an enormous overlap uh, with those concepts, with the inclusion narrative of the gospel, 
and it's exclusion narrative. So understanding uh, how you move from one to the other and then back again uh, seems to be very interesting. One last uh, concrete example, uh, a theological vision holds on to the centrality and the uh, permanence uh, of this great story of the gospel while recognizing that it's always moving into changing context. This is Stott's, uh, John Stott's language of uh, preaching in two worlds uh, and the like. So what, uh, what one does in a small New England village enacting a ministry uh, uh, that is to be contextually important, significant, looks very different than what Tim is doing in Manhattan uh, uh, with uh, Redeemer and then with City to City. Uh, but it strikes me they both are speaking out of a theological vision and not simply a doctrinal set of convictions. Uh, that is, they both are trying to interpret their context in light of the gospel. They happen to be very different contexts, though. So it looks quite different in those two settings. Yeah, I mean, I find the concept so helpful because you often wonder why two ministries seem so incompatible despite their doctrinal agreement, or perhaps why different churches may end up doing the same things in terms of program despite having wildly different theology. And Theological Vision explains a lot of that because we're never doing theology out of context. Whenever doing it in isolation, um, I want to turn to more of your your book, Uncommon Unity. And there's a lot that stood out. We'll cover a fair bit of it. But this line, I think, requires a little bit of explanation. You write, Christians of all stripes should recognize that a prophetic presence in politics, rather than a new political order, more nearly captures the missionary task of Christians in their own culture. Just going to ask you to defend that view there. I, I mean, I, I do think this is a question that comes up fairly often because I just had a, a friend yesterday tell me, well, what would the early Christians do? Well, I guess they couldn't really speak to these issues. Because how do you situate this in that original context? And how do we treat the the biblical words as timeless, as inspired by God, even though they were written to a specific people in a specific place under certain political conditions that are so different from ours. And one can update that uh, example, thinking about the remarkable growth of Christianity in a place like China, where there's no chance at all that uh, Christians, no matter whether it's 50 million or 100 million, are going to exercise political power uh, for a long time to come. So what is their role? And it strikes me, here is the, the connection between the early church, the Chinese church, and our uh, setting in um, late modern democracy in America. Uh, that is to say, we're I think we're trying to live out that sense in which uh, the gospel is both a powerful presence uh, in all those different contexts without being embraced by any of those political orders. Uh, what gives its power is not its protection by uh, established political authority, but in, in essence, still it must retain a prophetic voice to speak into, and uh, oftentimes against uh, the reigning political uh, order of the day. 
It does it in a host of different ways. Might might put it that speaking truth to power is different than using power to uh, defend the truth. Uh, and I think that's true in every age. Uh, many have made this case that the church flourishes uh, most across the centuries, across the millennia, when it's not established. Um, and it strikes me we're seeing that again and again in our own times, and it strikes me that was the message of the early church as well. So I think we lose the, the church loses its vitality when it's after political authority or political power. In the last 10 years, Rick, I, I would say that one of the clearest differentiating points I've seen on politics is whether somebody says we have to get our political protections or else the church will be destroyed versus somebody who says the church is going to continue to be okay so long as it preserves its witness regardless of the political situation. It's, I mean, do you, do you sense that same thing? That, that's, that's a major divide that I see underlies almost most of the divisions I see among evangelicals. Right. No, I think that's exactly right. The seeds of it were planted, I think, in the uh, West, in the American context anyway, in the 90s, it, with the culture wars, uh, taking over culture in the last decade. I think you're exactly right. That has meant taking over some sort of political authority to protect uh, the church. And, and I think history teaches us, but also the gospel teaches us, uh, that strategy is bound to fail. And so uh, the, the, uh, again and again, uh, when, when the quarters of power are the vehicles for the protection of our deepest convictions, uh, they lose uh, vitality. Can you think, Rick, of a more protected, a, a church more protected by the government today in the world than the Russian Orthodox Church? And yet look at what they've been willing to compromise. And, and tragically. And tragically so, sure. to, the, to the cost of their own souls, not to mention the, the death of, of countless others. And that's not an isolated incident in history. <laughs> that is a, is, a, is a constant refrain. Um, now, I do wonder, though, I don't want this to imply that the political order doesn't matter. Um, if only as a matter of common grace, it matters. And you, you say something a little bit later as well. I'll quote you again. Later, modern democracy lacks a common moral tradition that would give it the convictions to keep these sorts of behaviors restrained, end quote. And the behaviors you're referring to here are greed and power. Essentially, you're saying our current political system does not allow us to restrain greed and power. So... I'm just wondering, how exactly can we get back to a moral order that would be able to restrain greed and power without introducing some sort of new political order to be able to incentivize those things? Explain how that would be possible. That's a challenging question. There's lots of layers uh, to it. So I'm, I'll speak uh, from a couple of angles, uh, recognizing that I'm not a political scientist uh, and so I, I speak more as a um, from the vantage point of a churchman than a politician. Uh, so being careful here to suppose that uh, politics is not amoral or neutral uh, on moral questions. Uh, I think that was Rawls's mistake, that there could be a secular 
political order that was neutral on uh, all these big ticket uh, items. Uh, but then the question becomes, well, what's left? Uh, is it every man for every man? Is it every woman for every woman? Is it, uh, is it just chaos? Well, there surely are those trajectories in uh, the present moment that would suggest we are uh, entering more and more chaos because there is no uh, consensus about a common good. Now, a common good doesn't mean an all-encompassing religious worldview. Uh, that won't happen. But I do think that even the discussion of what we have in common uh, and what uh, our aspirations uh, might lead us to think uh, would be satisfying, that's a dangerous question in late modern democracy because of uh, the uh, suggestion that it oppresses uh, individuals against their own understanding of the good. Uh, I think that we have to uh, not simply resist that, but persuade folks uh, that uh, there is something missing in their flourishing if they don't seek the well-being of others, uh, more important than their own good. Uh, there is, I think, the moral order that I'm talking about, and we could talk about it as the common grace of the gospel, uh, the, the createdness uh, of our uh, humanity, uh, all, all the like. So there are some things uh, which the law ought to prohibit, but not necessarily all immoralities are to be prohibited, and greed among them. I, I think once we start legislating against greed— uh, that gets us in trouble. But now, uh, back to the thickness, the complexity of the question, where is the boundary between what we can enact by law and what we cannot? And therein lies the question of wisdom. Um, we, we just have to be wise about the context in which we live and its, um, its fundamental values. So in the first three centuries of the church, uh, how that was lived out was spoken against a Roman context of um, deep uh, hierarchies and oppressions. Uh, how it's lived out in China is different than how it's going to be lived out in the democratic West, recognizing the core values, the cultural values that are in our context is important as we kind of seek in to raise that, uh, raise the answer to that question. Let's continue on that on that same theme here. You mentioned John Rawls, um, pretty prominent figure in your book, which is only makes sense given his tremendous influence, whether or not people have ever heard of him. Um, a lot of my questions while reading your book return to whether or not this political order, which we could describe technically as classical liberalism, is viable. And you criticize, you just criticize Rawls there, but you, you say this, Putting It's similar to what you've already articulated. Putting religious convictions on the sidelines in the hope of avoiding religious conflict simply sets up other ideological conflicts arising from diverse secular claims to justice. I think the simple way to put it is that if you don't borrow your definition from a religious tradition, you'll be making it up. And who is to say that your definition is going to hold except if you enforce it by power? i.e., then you are tempted toward injustice. I'm wondering, Rick, how can Christianity affirm the good of classical liberalism while helping to mitigate against the worst 
and ultimately its demise, which I would say is the tendency of classic liberalism to divorce itself from its Christian origins and to become basically every man, woman, and child for themselves. Right. It, it leads to a kind of bare individualism yeah. that is uh, dangerous for every, every individual. Uh, we do need each other. Uh, and the ties that bind us together are part of the fabric of the created order. Uh, and so reckoning with that uh, sense in which we have to affirm, as classic liberalism does, the universal dignity of every person. Uh, that's absolutely central. But what's m often missing in modern secular notions of liberalism is the, the, the intrinsic dysfunctions that are also part and parcel of human nature in the world we live in. So uh, it is important to recognize the sad history uh, that is part of our own story with regards to uh, the emergence of democracy, uh, of classical liberalism. At one and the same time, we could affirm uh, the universal dignity of everyone by virtue of being created. And at the same time, uh, engage in the political compromise over slavery, where we excluded large uh, parts of uh, humanity uh, from uh, that uh, affirmation of dignity. Uh, how, do, how do you account for that? I think secular liberalism doesn't have the resources to account for both the dignity and the dysfunctions of human nature. Uh, and therein, it, it seems to me, is the door that opens up for us as Christians in speaking into this um, uh, present uh, cultural moment of, of ours. I think um, one of the things I write about in the, in the, in the book about uh, Tim is, and, and people might be surprised by how much of an interest he has in the same topics that you cover in Uncommon Unity, mainly because he hasn't written a book on it, and it's not the kind of thing that you'd preach about often, but one of the things he comes back to consistently in at least the last decade plus is the idea of the central problem of the Enlightenment, that it demands universal justice, but without universal morality. And you simply can't have both. Um, if you're going to have justice, you have to have a moral grounding. And right now we are left, the cultural crisis we're in is we're left dangling between the two of them, a longing, not only because we're made in the image of God, but because we had been reared in a Christian-informed culture for a universal justice, but a resistance because of our sinful nature and because of our expressive individualistic culture to resist any outside influences and authorities on our lives. And that no, is no, exactly right. So um, we need to be careful of a nostalgia that supposes once upon a time all was well, no. but we also can't avoid saying about the present moment, there are some good things uh, among our uh, secular neighbors and friends. The protection, uh, for example, of uh, the freedom of conscience, the freedom of uh, community, uh, uh, freedom of speech, those are all products of classic uh, liberalism. And I sure think that's a better way to go uh, than um, alternative realities. Uh, so Ben Franklin's wonderful phrase, Democracy is the worst of all forms of governance except all the rest. Uh, that is to say, it has a great danger hardwired into it uh, without some sort of moral interpretation of it. Uh, on the other hand, the alternatives uh, strike me as not too attractive 
uh, in the yeah. present day as well. Yeah. Now, part of the paradox we're dealing with here, you observe in relation to politics among Christians that we both believe politics can corrupt. Um, you hear endless references, especially among Christians, to the negatives of politics. But we also believe, seemingly at the same time, that politics is the key to cultural influence and change. I'm just wondering, Rick, how are we supposed to reconcile these twin truths? Uh, and it's a, it's a great, and there are a thousand sermons uh, to come uh, on this one. <laughs> I, I, I think the easy, easy kind of children's story, the Bible uh, account of it is uh, to say that we take seriously other people's corruptions, uh, less so our own corruptions. And uh, the, the challenge here is to see not only in us what God uh, has done uh, that is good, but also the goodness of the created order. And we probably need to emphasize more what is uh, present in our own dysfunctions uh, and uh, less so in the dysfunctions of those around us. So to be another way to put it, to be self-critical and also uh, critical of the world we live in without giving up hope. Um, yeah. we, we all know it's easier to be critical of somebody else than ourselves. Yeah. Well, we, um, we published an article about one of the great abolitionist heroes, Granville Sharp, who was also uh, an amazing student uh, and teacher of New Testament Greek. And many may be familiar, more academically inclined about Granville Sharp, Granville Sharp rule about technical Greek. But one of our writers, Steve Bateman, suggested through his through Granville Sharp's abolitionism, another move, another rule, which is this. When asking God for protection from the injustice that comes to you, repent of all the injustice that comes from you. And I, that's exactly a summary of what you just said right there. Be as, be as concerned about the, the corruptions that you manifest and enable and incentivize as the ones that you decry in your opponents. A couple more questions here with Rick Lentz. We're talking about his book, Uncommon Unity, Wisdom for the Church in an Age of Division. Uh, you write this, Rick. Um, you say, quote, The church is not constituted as a political entity or an economic organization and will lose its prophetic role in the culture if it too readily equates its voice with a specialist understanding of politics or economics or art. I, I'm, all, I'm all for that. I wonder what's the happy medium between engaging these topics as part of our theological vision but without prescribing views that go beyond biblical warrant? Um. This is a theme that's been running through the conversation, and yeah. rightly so. Where's the happy medium <laughs> exactly. between the ten? And, and there is great mystery in the world God has created, uh, and we ought not be ashamed of it. Uh, we recognize that God is three in one, uh, that the, the deepest part of reality is this unity in diversity. So just as backdrop, I, I like the question because that's exactly uh, what ought to run through all of our cultural conversations uh, and it's not simply deciding I'm a little bit left, a little bit right, so I must be in the middle. Uh, that's a dreadful uh, understanding. Is God three or is God one? Well, maybe he's two. That is, we find a middle. No, uh, uh, we fully embrace uh, God's threeness and his oneness at the same time. That's just a methodological point. 
to, to the question itself, uh, uh, the challenge is to see the church uh, as fundamentally a movement, a gospel movement, uh, it, to uh, reflect the grace and the generosity of the gospel in word and deed. Now, there are lots of uh, individuals in that community, however, that have specialist understanding of vocations, whether it's in art or politics, education, uh, mechanics, whatever it might be. And they ought to be encouraged uh, to speak uh, into those uh, specialized disciplines, specialized vocations, uh, with the grace and generosity of the gospel. Uh, so the whole history of the faith and work movement is in view, in my mind, behind this question. And we've come uh, pretty late to the to the issue, to be honest, as evangelicals. Uh, how, how does God relate to what goes on on Monday morning and not simply Sunday morning? Uh, therein is a great challenge for pastors uh, to step out of their own sense of calling. And maybe just a concrete example, if every example you use in a sermon comes from your vocation as a pastor, uh, it's going to fly over the head of uh, the vast members, vast number of members in the congregation. So we, we ought to be able to speak wisely into the vocations that are represented in the church without supposing the church itself has become a specialist uh, organization. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and last uh, question here, Rick, about the book. This was just a fun little question you asked toward the end, which was to— you you describe that when we bump into wisdom, our hearts are strangely warmed, and you encourage us to ask, who are the wisest persons I know? Um, I love that perspective. It really brings things to, to a point. I'll ask you, who's the wisest person you know? Um, a quick comment on wisdom, and yeah. then let me talk about the wisest person uh, I know that— uh, every time I think about this, it, I go to one person in mind in particular. Uh, wisdom uh, captures the tensions that we've been talking about, uh, the mysteries uh, that are hardwired into uh, creation because of the depth, the richness, the complexity of our creator. Uh, and so wisdom knows when to speak to a fool and when not to speak to a fool, Proverbs 26. Uh, it recognizes the difference of circumstances. So it's very different wisdom is than information uh, or what we might call knowledge uh, as well. And it's in, it is in short supply because you can't teach it. It often comes through the experience of suffering. Not always, uh, but often. Uh, and it often attaches to age uh, as well. Uh, what you live through, you learn from. So the, the wisest person, uh, and I could go on, write a whole book, I should, um, 80-year-old farmer uh, from a small Midwestern town in Missouri. Uh, he uh, did not like to talk about himself. Uh, he was also the local bank president. He had a tanning factory. He was a farmer. Uh, both of his uh, sons had died uh, early from cancer. He was about to lose his daughter uh, to cancer as well. He outlived all three children, uh, an enormous amount of suffering in his life and tears. His wife, long time uh, in, uh, in hospital with a variety of ailments. He never complained. I never heard him complain once in, in my life. He took in immigrants during World War II of Chinese origin. That was not exactly the popular thing to do. He built, he built a whole addition to his house. He, he was my, my wife's grandfather, the only Christian on that side of the family that I knew. Uh, and uh, he was just 
always generous uh, and and gracious. Uh, and as we said, rarely talked about himself, but always thought about others. So all these vocations he had when he talked about them was not about his role, but about how others in the town flourished because they had employment during difficult days. And so uh, there was just something you bump into him and you don't forget him. Uh, I yeah, uh, One little side note here, my grandson, uh, just born two months ago, my third uh, grandson, was named Porter. That was that was uh, his name, his great great grandfather's name. And so you you realize wisdom has a legacy. Now that's not only the only wise person I've ever met, but it, it just it strikes us mostly when we bump into you. Just know it, yeah. and there's something rich and as as I've said, heartwarming about it. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. And I want to end on. That's a great note to end on, and as well, this quote. And what we're doing with, along with this book on Tim Keller and this series with Gospel Bound, is we're also launching and introducing to the world the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics. And you did a great job of explaining, uh, with a quote in the book, exactly what we're trying to do through this center. And it's this, quote, Christians must learn to stand in the grand tradition of Augustine, by resolutely resisting the criticism that religious conviction is the source of our present cultural problems, while also affirming the possibility that religion can contribute to those problems when it is used as a political hammer to keep unbelievers outside the corridors of cultural power. It's the same themes we've been talking about here, um, that, uh, that we, 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 don't, we defend the faith, against unjust criticism, deploy the faith to pursue justice in our age, but also deploy that same faith to uh, examine the places where we need to repent ourselves. Yes. Yes. All of them must uh, must take place together for a faithful public witness. The book here is Uncommon Unity, Wisdom for the Church in an Age of Division. The author and my guest on Gospel Bound this week, Richard Lentz. Rick, thanks for the time. Thanks for having me, Colin. I wish you the best. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound. For more interviews and to sign up for my newsletter, head over to tgc.org slash gospelbound. Rate and review Gospel Bound on your favorite podcast platform so others can join the conversation. Until next time, remember, when we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope.